Good morning, church. I hope that you took advantage of that opportunity to praise the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is our privilege to do that this morning. Those of us that know him, it'll be our privilege to do that through all eternity. And it's a choice we make now. I think it'll be uncontrolled and unfiltered one day when we see him face to face. As we begin our study of God's Word today, I've asked uh, Tommy Owens to come, and I want to ask him a couple questions. I want him to share his testimony with us. Uh, we've been doing this week by week, and we've decided to continue that. Uh, I called Tommy, and um, I said, I've got a favor to ask you, Tommy. He said, I was, I was afraid of that. <laughs> so you may get a call. Um, but uh, seriously, Tommy, most of you uh, know him. Uh, he is no stranger to our church family. He and Gene, his wife, have been part of this church for many, many years. Uh, he is a Sunday school teacher. He is a deacon. Uh, has been active in many of the leadership roles in this church family for a long time. A couple things I really appreciate about Tommy. Uh, one is his love for the Lord Jesus. It is obvious and apparent you can't talk to him very long without recognizing that this is a man that loves God. Another thing that I appreciate is his love for men and to invest in men. And for many years, he's maintained a Bible study in his barn on Thursday mornings, and there's a group that meets there, and different groups have met there over the years, and he's invested his life uh, helping other men grow and uh, to be faithful in their walk with God. Would you join me in welcoming Tommy to our platform this morning? Tommy? How did you first come to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Uh, well, I was uh, 12 years old, and I went to church camp. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I, I didn't go for spiritual reasons. I just went because I like sports, and uh, I like to play, and I knew it was going to be fun. And so, and so I did, and uh, I remember on a Tuesday night, uh, God captured my heart. And uh, like I said, I, I didn't have any intention of going for any other reason, but God really captured my heart that night. And um, one of the things that happened after that, though, and, and one of the reasons I became so passionate about discipleship, especially for men, is that no one came along and, and, uh, and helped me and, and discipled me and to tell me what I should do, and uh, this is the way you walk in it. And so I struggled quite a bit uh, trying to find my own way. And uh, so... Then again, I think that everyone who comes to Christ, someone should come along and help them. Amen. Amen. What are, what are some ways, uh, Tommy, that Jesus has made a particular difference in your life since you were 12 years old? And I know that he's, he's led you in many directions in many ways. What are some couple things that come to mind? Um, I think when, uh, uh, after we had joined the church, uh, uh, we came home after college, joined the church, and uh, I think that when we, when we decided to become committed to the church, to the body of Christ, become faithful uh, uh, in service and serving, and uh, uh, God really began to, to do a work in our life because of that. Hmm. So your church commitment, he used that. Well, Tom, we're so thankful for you, and we're thankful for your ministry among us. I'd like to pray for you as we, as we begin. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this brother. He is one of your choice servants among us, and 
We're thankful for him. We're thankful for the way that he shines brightly for you, not just on one day a week, but every day he worships you and loves you. Father, we pray that you bless his home and you would continue to use him as, as he teaches your word, uh, both here on Sunday morning and, and during the week. Uh, Father, we are, we are thankful that you reached down and touched the heart of the 12-year-old many years ago and changed him forever. Father, we know that there are men and women and boys and girls perhaps sitting here, and they hear this story, and they're looking at their own life, and they're wondering, can I know God like that? Father, I pray today you would hear their cry. I pray that their life might be changed this morning, just as you changed Tommy's heart many years ago. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Amen. This is an exciting week around here at Wynn Baptist Church. Uh, this is Vacation Bible School Week. And um, thank we had one woohoo from Todd. And, and we know that there are others. And there have been people who've been working for many weeks to prepare for this particular week, working on decorations, working on their, their lesson plans, working on the, the program. And we want to invite you to come back tonight. Uh, you'll hear more about this at the end of the service, but we want to invite you to come back tonight at 5 o'clock. There'll be a, a program. There'll be a fish fry. And we want to invite you to come, come back with your kids. And, um, and if you've got neighbor kids, you think they might be interested in VBS, bring them along with you. And uh, we want to encourage you to come and be a part of that this evening. But VBS is one of the most important times in the life of any church, particularly in Baptist life, because we consistently see that Vacation Bible School is one of the most evangelistic things that we do together as Southern Baptists. And so I want, I want to encourage you, if you're not already serving or working, would you please pray for this particular week and pray that God would open hearts just like he opened Tommy's heart when he was 12 years old. I also want to thank those who made our free range fellowship work last week. That was special, and I'm thankful for all the classes that brought food and those who helped prepare everything. Thankful for our cooks, and um, it was a sweet time of fellowship. And I just want to say thank you for that before we go forward. Well, this is the week. It happens every year when Southern Baptists get their report card. You may not have seen that. It's not necessarily something that goes out in the regular media, but if you drill down, look in Baptist Press, you'll see that the annual statistics for Southern Baptists were released. And once again, as has been happening for nearly 15 years, we are seeing a steady decline in Baptist life in a couple of areas. One is overall membership is in decline. The other is that baptisms are in decline. We are finding that fewer and fewer people are coming to know Christ through the ministry of the some 48,000 churches that serve together and call themselves Southern Baptists. We have 30% of our congregations never baptize anyone. And so what does that mean? And why is that significant? And, and how should we respond to that as an individual Christian? Uh, we do see that church plants are up, but obviously the, our, our church planting efforts are not necessarily resulting in a crop of new Christians. And so that should be a deep concern to us. Uh, we want to reach our world for Jesus Christ. We want to spread the gospel. We don't want to just sit on it and hide it and contain it. The, um, when I first became a Christian, one of the things that I heard over and over again was that we prided ourselves on being a New Testament church. And that excited me, even at 17 years of age, because because 
what that meant was, what people were saying to me when they said, we are a New Testament church, is that what we do in our practice and what we do in our doctrine of God's Word, and that we want to be like the church that we find in the New Testament, and so our practices and our beliefs, we want that to be lining up with what the New Testament describes, a New Testament church. But let me make a very simple observation. You cannot have a New Testament church unless you have New Testament Christians. And we are studying the book of Judges at this particular time in the life of our church. And what we are seeing is what happens when God's people maybe continue their allegiance in name, but their heart is wandering further and further away from him. This morning I want to talk to you about God's way with his wayward people. And in just a moment we're going to be reading from Judges 3, verses 7 through 11. Last week when studying the first two chapters, we saw how in chapter 1, this is the generation that, that Joshua had helped enter into the promised land. They weren't the generation that left Egypt. That generation had died in the wilderness. Those of you who are Bible scholars who remember that they made a, a failed approach to the promised land right after they were delivered from Egypt, but they were not able to enter the promised land because of fear and a lack of faith, and because of their rejection of God's ability to save them and bring them into the promised land, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God raised up another generation. This is the generation that Joshua led into the promised land. And as they go into the promised land, they initially they do well, and then Joshua just before Joshua dies, there are some things that begin to happen that cause great concern. Instead of driving out the Canaanites, instead of driving out the people who were idolaters and who were, who were guilty of all kinds of crimes against humanity, they began to settle and live among them. They began to adopt their social and cultural practices. They began to worship their gods and, and embrace all of the attitudes and behaviors of this people. And so, that's what we read in chapter 1. But when we come to chapter 2, God sends a messenger to them, and he says, you have not done what I told you to do. And we, and we see how, how the people respond, and they weep, and they go home. There's no particular change, no particular repentance. And then the Bible goes on and says that after Joshua died, that there was a generation that came up that did not know God or his works. They completely were ignorant of him, they were not part of that original generation. They forgot all the things that God had done. They not only lived among the Canaanites, but they, they just kept getting worse. And the story in Judges is a story of how each generation continues to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It's a downward spiral if you read the book. It's absolutely depressing until you realize this. This is not just story, a story about the wayward people of God. It's also a story about how God wins back the heart of his wayward people. And he does it again and again and again. And so God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. And he does not abandon us, even though we may have abandoned him. What does it look like when God's people become wayward? Look at Judges chapter 3, verse 7. If you... Um, in your spare time, I'd encourage you to go back and read 
the last half of chapter 2 because it is a summary of how God deals with wayward people. And it's kind of a theoretical statement of what God does. And then what follows in Judges is story after story after story illustrating the last half of chapter 2. And so it's worth reading. It's worth reading about. But what we have in verse 7 of chapter 3 is the very first with wayward people. So look at verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. Rishathaim. Say that fast about four or five times. King of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. I think they're making the point. So the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. See, it is, it is an amazing fact, it is a sad fact, that even though you may have come to Christ, you may have trusted him and his death for you on the cross to forgive you for all your sins. You may know because of that decision and trusting Christ that he has saved you, and you may remember an initial period where God was teaching you things and you were growing and his word was precious to you. But it is a sad fact and a very real possibility that there may come a time in your walk with God and you may be experiencing it right now when you find yourself bored with God, bored with his word, maybe even a little angry at God and your heart is not where it used to be. You find yourself excited and, and more interested and, and in love with other things, hobbies or people or, or issues or whatever it may be, and that stirs your heart and you get excited about that. But when it comes to the things of God, your heart is not there. And he's not precious to you. Prayer is a burden. Prayer is difficult. Bible reading is a chore. And you feel like your heart is just dead. Sometimes we get there and we're not even conscious that that's what's happening to us. Not fully. And our hearts can drift. It's a real danger. Book of Hebrews talks about it. Book of Judges is all about it. And so here's the question I want to pose today. If I'm truly his child, if I'm truly his child, how does God deal with me when I wander away from him? What can I expect God to do? If I'm running from the Lord and I'm a Christian and I'm running from God, it sounds like it's not possible, and yet here we are. We have the people of God and Judges. Here we are at other times. We see examples of it in the Scripture. We even have a statement about it, which I'll give you a reference to in just a moment, Corinthians. It is possible for someone who knows the Lord to run from God, to ignore God, to be out of fellowship or, or connection with God. 
What does God do? From this very first instant in the book of Judges, we see four things. Number one, God sees what is happening in my heart. That's where it begins. God sees what is happening in my heart. I may not even be paying attention to my heart, but God sees it. Look again at verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see how he sees it? It's not just what they're doing. He goes on and explains. They forgot the Lord their God. So that's not something you do. That's something that's inside of you. There's something wrong with their heart. And served the Baals and Asherahs. They gave their heart to other gods. And so the first thing you and I need to realize in this process or cycle of redemption is that God first sees what's happening in my heart. He's aware of it. He recognizes it. He sees what I'm doing. He knows what I'm thinking. He's all over that. I can't hide from him. When it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, what does that mean? What evil were they doing? Well, if you back up just to verse 5 and 6, it tells us, it says, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. Why is that a problem? We saw that last week, didn't we? They weren't supposed to dwell among them. They were supposed to drive them out. Verse 5, they dwelt among the Canaanites. Now look at verse 6. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. It matters who you marry. And in this particular instance, God had said, don't intermarry with these people. You're supposed to drive them out. You don't, it's rare, it does happen. But it's very rare when someone gets married in the scripture to someone who's an idolater and that person who is supposed to be a follower of Yahweh leads them to follow Yahweh. Usually it's the other way around. They influence them with their practices and their beliefs. And that's what was happening here. And so they serve their gods. They serve their gods. And one of the things you and I need to understand about this incident in the Scripture is that this is very much a manifestation of a spiritual conflict that is taking place throughout the ages. Most of the time, you and I deal with what we see. We don't go below the surface, if you will. We don't see the unseen. We believe it. We say we believe it. We believe that there's a devil. We believe that there's a Satan. We believe that there are demons. We say we believe that. But we don't understand when, when the activity of Satan or demons manifests itself in our world around us. In this case, this is a manifestation of a spiritual conflict that's taking place. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. In chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts or armies of wickedness in the heavenly places. We make the terrible mistake in most of our churches of thinking the difficulty we have is with some other person. The ultimate thing that's happening when we have conflict is it is an outward, visible manifestation of a spiritual war. And someone's getting creamed. And that's what was happening here with the people of God, is that the enemy was after their heart. He's after your heart. 
They wanted to turn their heart away from God, turn their heart to serve idols. Those idols were more than just wood and stone and symbols. They would destroy families and destroy marriages and destroy lives. I think a real question we have to ask is, do I have idols in my heart? We have to ask ourselves that. And before I go any further, let me just say this. When I, when I ask that question, do I have idols in my heart, it would be very easy for you and I to listen to that and say, well, no, I don't, but I know exactly who you're talking about. And I really don't want you to do that. Would you, would you please not do that? What I want you to do is to ask yourself the question, do I have idols in my heart? This is about you and the Lord. And, and I thought of two or three things. I really, really prayed about this, and I, and I found myself, uh, God speaking to me, and so there are four, four things I thought about. Do I have idols in my heart? One was my money and time. My use of money and time may betray the fact that I have an idol in my heart. If my life is about just getting more, the acquisition of money, if, it's, if my time is devoted to the pursuit of those things, to the pursuit of selfish things, things I want, see, the thing that leads us away from God is not always just sinful lust or desire. A lot of times it's just our appetites, and we gain an appetite for certain things, and we keep pursuing it, pursuing it, pursuing it, and that's how we lose our spiritual passion is we have the wrong kind of appetites and we're feeding on the wrong things. We talked about the sin monster here before and we're supposed to starve the sin monster, not feed it and make it fat and healthy. And so Jesus even talks about this in Matthew 5, uh, in Matthew 6, he talks about where your treasure is. He said, that's where your heart is. If my treasure is in heaven, it's because I'm accumulating things because I'm doing the will of God of my life and I'm all about pleasing him. But if my treasures are on earth, that's what my heart may be pursuing too. But wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to go. And that's where your money's going to go. And that's where your time is going to go. And the things of God are just going to go by the wayside. My money and my time may, may betray the, the existence of an idol in my heart. My mouth may give it away. My mouth gives it away when I talk about what I love. When I talk about what I love, I'm talking about ultimately what I worship. And what I talk about all the time betrays what I love, betrays my passion, betrays what I, what I care about the most. And I'm not talking about an individual conversation where you may talk about how your favorite baseball team did this week or your basketball team or whatever the case may be. I'm not talking about an occasional conversation. I'm talking about if that's just all that you talk about. When the people around you know that if I want to have a conversation with so-and-so, all i got to do is bring up this topic because that's all they're going to talk about. That may betray the existence of an idol, my mouth. My mind. What's in my mind? If I'm consumed with worry, I am focused on something, not God. If I'm consumed with fear, God doesn't want you to fear anything but Him. Because we've talked about this before, how fear rivets our attention on something. And if I fear something, it's a kind of worship, it's a kind of reverence, and I'm putting all of my attention on that thing, it's a kind of worship. Is my mind filled with worry, anxiety, fear, hate, longing, a constant longing? Not always, but if I'm longing for something that has nothing to do with God, if I'm longing for something, if I'm longing for a person, longing for, for whatever it is, that longing can betray an idol in my heart. So what's going on in my mind? My manner, my manner. 
can betray an idol in my heart. The way I treat others can reveal what's ruling me. And uh, if that's a constant habit of life, if that's the way that I always conduct myself, it may betray the idol in my heart. You know, for example, Jesus said that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. That's how I describe Satan. And if my heart is to lie, if my heart is to hate, if my heart is to be unkind, mean, cruel to others, well, it betrays where the worship is going in my life, the idol of my heart, but it's not God. Now, the Bible says that if we walk in the light, this is in 1 John, if we walk in the light, see in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In other words, if I'm walking with God, I love his people. I love them. And uh, they may be weird, odd, they may take me off once in a while, whatever the case may be, but I love them. They're my people if I walk with God. And so my manner can betray that. Do I have idols in my heart? So God knows what's happening in my heart. I may think that no one else can see. I may still be attending church. I may still teach a Sunday school class. I may be a deacon. I may be in a service role. I may be a casual attender. It may, doesn't matter. No one else sees my heart, but God sees my heart. The second thing that happens in God's way with wayward people is he not only sees our heart, but secondly, God sends pressure into my life. God sends pressure into my life. In fact, that language is taken right out of chapter 2 that I encourage you to go back and read because it talks about how God raises up oppressors in the lives of his wayward people. And literally it means they bring pressure to them. Look at verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim eight years. This is exactly what God said he was going to do in chapter 2. Exactly. So why does he do this? Why does God do this? Why doesn't he just come and say, hey, I love you. You know, hey, why don't you quit what you do? Why does he raise up, raise up an oppressor? Why does he do that? I'm going to give you a real simple answer. Because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you, dear one. Sin is a problem. We know that. If you're a Christian today, there came a point in your life where you knew that sin was separating you from God and that if you died in your sin, that you would spend eternity without God in a place called hell. You knew sin was a problem. You knew that sin comes with its own built-in consequences. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. It's something that's going to separate you from God for all eternity. And you came to a place where you realized that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment for your sin and he carried your sin away. Sin is a problem. We know that. But look, sin didn't stop being a problem when you got saved. Sin is still a problem. It continues to be a problem. It's not okay to sin now that you're saved. Just because you know that you're saved and you believe once saved, always saved, and that you're going to go to heaven when you die doesn't mean that it's okay to keep sinning. As his child, if I persist, if I persist in pursuing a life without him, a life where I'm running from him, if I persist in the same sinful attitudes, the same sinful behaviors, if I keep doing that, listen to me, your heavenly father is going to come after you because he's your father. It's the nature of being his son or his daughter. He's going to come after you. If that's not your experience, 
The Bible says very sternly, Hebrews 12, you can go read it for yourself, says you need to be concerned about that because it is validation that you have been saved. It's validation that you're his son. It's validation that you're his daughter. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, the Bible says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. You see that? That's why he does it. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. So if you're running from God this morning, you can expect that if you belong to him, he's coming after you. Now, now, how does he do that? Well, we get a clue. I mentioned it earlier. The wages of sin is death. There's a built-in consequence to sin. In Galatians 6, 7, the apostle Paul writes, he says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he also reaps. There's a built-in consequence to sin. Now, you say, Pastor, how many, how many sins have this built-in consequence? Every single one. There's no exception. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, there's all kinds of scripture. One, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. The prophet makes it clear. He says, your own wickedness will correct you. The things that happen when you and I sin, we say, oh, God, God is, God is doing all this to me. Well, in one sense, perhaps it's true, but God's not the one actively doing that to you. It's a consequence of your own sin. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord. Who's God? You're God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. So when we turn from God, he uses the built-in consequences of sin to turn us back to himself. By the way, when that happens in an individual life or in a church, we call that revival. And it's something that God does when the church is sleeping, when I'm sleeping, when I'm unconscious of God and his purpose for my life and his love for me. God will allow something to come into my life, usually the consequence of my own sin, and he will use it to wake me up. That's why one of the other words for revival is spiritual awakening. And this is where revival begins. Uh, My youngest girl, Abby, has been working this summer at a job where on some days she's got to get up really early. And I asked her permission before I told this story. She has to get up really early, uh, some mornings as early as 3.30. And so in order for this college student during nine months of the year, worker during the summer, to get up at 3.30 in the morning, she has to set an alarm. Now I don't know about you, but when you're that age, how many of you could get up at 3.30 to an alarm? She's got a very special alarm, though, that she found. And she hasn't, she hasn't missed work yet. It's an alarm. It's an app on her phone. And you can control how many, all the parameters of it, but it's an app on her phone, and she has to solve three math problems before the alarm will go off. <laughs> it will keep working and ringing and ringing and ringing until until she works the math problems. Now, you can make them as hard or as easy as you want. You can set as many problems as you want or as few as you want, but, but it makes you work the problem before you wake up. It's an alarm, and it works good. What we see in this text is that God has an alarm, and in verse 8, 
He has several alarms that are going off. And maybe these are alarms that are going off in your life right now. Here's alarm number one. These are alarms that go off in, in the life of God's people. Alarm number one, broken fellowship. This is the very first one. Broken fellowship. It says the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, you need to understand that if you're a Christian, you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have become a son of God, a daughter of God, that will never, ever change. Your relationship with God is eternally settled. But your fellowship with God can change from day to day. And God has called you and I to to come to him, to know him, to love him, to worship him, to enjoy him, and for him to enjoy us each and every day. And one of the, one of the consequences, one of the very first things that happens when, I'm, when I forget God and I'm running from God, away from God, is I, is I lose that fellowship with him. And if you are accustomed to walking with God, you're going to know that. Because the very next time you come to him, the very next time you you begin to pray the very next time you begin to read the word or sit in an environment where the word is being taught or preached. What the very first time that happens, you sense something is not right in your heart. Something is missing. Something is wrong. Something is broken. And it's your fellowship with God because of sin. Not your relationship, but your fellowship. And so that's the first alarm. Something goes wrong and there's a broken fellowship. Second alarm. Disturbing losses. Disturbing losses. Again, in verse 8, it says his, hot, his anger burned hot against Israel. And then it says he sold them into the hand of, and we've said his name a million times, Cushan Rishathayim. And, and God creates a circumstance, allows a circumstance to come into your life where there are these disturbing losses. Here comes this man. He's a mighty man, a strong man. His name is interesting. No one's exactly sure how to translate it, but his basic name is Cushan, like Bob, Jim, Cushan. Rishathaim is like a nickname, and it can mean Cushan of double wickedness or the crime committing Cushan. I don't think they thought much of him. And the Bible says that God sold his people into the hand of Cushan. Sold them. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you sell something, the ownership of it is transferred. And so, for a season, the ownership of the people of God was passed over to this enemy. And, and God has allowed it to happen. He has not, I don't believe this for a moment, that God actively seeks to destroy, hurt, wound in that sense. But in this pattern of what God does with his wayward people, he allows the consequences of our sin to come in. And one of the greatest consequences of your sin can be when God removes his presence from your life. And God steps off the battlefield. He is no longer fighting for you. He is standing in opposition against you. And then disturbing losses occur. And these disturbing losses are intended to wake you and I up. We have a name for this. It's called reality check. Reality check. I looked it up in the dictionary. Here's what it said. Reality check. An occasion on which one is reminded of the state of things in the real world. Reality check. Are you experiencing a reality check in your life right now? 
The, in the real world, the Bible says that you have enemies in the spiritual realm that you cannot see, but that are chomping at the bit to destroy your life and to destroy your heart for God. Peter says that Satan is like a roaring lion walking around seeking who he can devour. If God withdraws his presence from your life, what do you think you're exposed to? Wants to eat you up, wants to devour you, wants to destroy you. That's why one of the last steps of church discipline described in 1 Corinthians 5 is this. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, it says the very last thing you do, if they don't respond to anything else, they're not listening to the church, they're not listening to the leadership of the church, they're not responding at all to the, the grace and the favor of God. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, it says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, church, step back. Let them have a reality check. Let them see what it's like to be without the people of God. Let them see what it's like to be without the presence of God. And that's what God does with his wayward people. He withdraws his presence. I need to say very quickly that not all trouble in your life is because of God working in your life because you've been wayward. Not all trouble is that way. Last summer we studied 1 Peter, and one of the things that we saw there is that God uses everything that comes into your life, all trouble, all difficulty, in order to prove, test, and grow, and strengthen your faith. So just because you're having trouble doesn't mean that God is coming after you because you've been wayward. But I tell you what, if you ever get sold, if God ever sells you over, you're going to know it. It won't come as a surprise your health, your stuff, and whatever else there is on this side of heaven in order to win your heart. He loves you that much. He does not sit back and do nothing. So alarm one is broken fellowship. Alarm two is disturbing losses. Alarm three, unbearable intensity. Unbearable intensity. The Bible says that the children of Israel served this guy for eight years. Eight years. Now, did it have to require eight years of servitude? Before things change, I don't believe that, but it went on for eight years, and then the intensity grew, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse, and whatever else they were trusting in, all of that faded away, and it's not so fun to chase the idols anymore. Unbearable intensity. So God sees our heart. He sends pressure. To get our attention to wake us up. Then number three, God waits for me to turn to him. God waits for me to turn to him. Year one, God was waiting. Year two, God was waiting. Year three, God was waiting. Year five, God was waiting. God waits for me to turn to him. He was waiting for his people to come. It says in the very first part of verse nine, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, most of your Bible translations are going to have that word when. I would circle it. W-H-E-N, when. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. He was waiting for that when. He was waiting for that moment. He was waiting for a generation to cry out to him. Now, we're going to see later in Judges that sometimes one generation didn't cry out, another generation didn't cry out, and finally a generation cried out. 
And God waits for a generation that will cry out to him for that moment when us as individuals will cry out, parents or my grandparents or my great-grandparents, I need an encounter with God. And they're going to be coming those moments where my faith becomes not something handed down to me, but becomes something I've experienced because I trusted God when I was in trouble and I cried out to him. Now, why the cry? Why is it necessary that we cry out to him? Well, several things are happening at this moment. There's total surrender. It means I'm ending my reliance on myself. I'm ending my reliance on other things and other gods and other people. I'm surrendering to him when I cry out. I got no one else to listen to me. No one else who cares. No one else who loves me. No one else who's been watching me the whole time. No one else who's been coming after me. We surrender when we cry out to him. It's a confession when we cry out to him. It's a confession that I cannot save myself. It's a confession that my life is a mess. It's a confession that it's my own fault. I did this, but I can't change it. It's getting so deep into a dark place. It's getting so deep into a hole that if we were not able to cry out to God, we would have no hope. That tells me that as badly as we may need revival and win Arkansas, I cannot manufacture it. You cannot manufacture it. We can cry out to God, and God alone can make the difference. And then finally, number four, the last thing that happens in this cycle that we're going to see again and again in the book of Judges is this. After we cry out to him, number four, God delivers me from the enemy and to himself. Delivers me from the enemy and to himself. That's really important. Look at the rest of verse 9. They've cried out, and then it says, The Lord raised up a deliverer from the children of Israel. Now, Othniel is somebody we've seen before. He was in chapter 1. If you go back and read chapter 1, Othniel was one of the heroes. Nothing negative is said about Othniel in chapters 1, 2, or 3. He was a hero. He, was, he, he had all the appearances of being a, a, like a Joshua or like a Caleb. And during those eight years, uh, he could have been, he had the, the family, he had the experiences, he had all of those things. But none of that mattered until God raised him up. And God didn't raise him up until the people cried out. And the Bible goes on, it says, Who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, then it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's what changed everything. God, who had been absent, now showed up and was present in this man and was working through this man to deliver his people. You and I can't do anything on our own for ourselves. I cannot deliver myself. I cannot conquer sin in my own strength. I cannot simply turn over a new leaf. It is only by the Spirit of God that I can be delivered, changed transformed and it says and he judged Israel and he went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim king of Mesopotamia into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim so the land had rest for 40 years then Othniel the son of Kenaz died 40 years now, God manifests himself as we follow his lead, and he does it through the Holy Spirit. We've seen what evil looks like when it manifests itself. This is what it looks like when the Spirit of God comes and he manifests himself through our life. It says he went out and he went to war. The Holy Spirit will lead you to do battle with the sin in your life and with the effects of the enemy around you. And we don't fight flesh and blood. We fight 
on our knees. We fight by crying out. We fight by trusting in him. We trust in his spirit to work in us and through us. But we go to war. And it's not okay that things are the way they are. And we become dissatisfied with the way things are. And things begin to bother us. Things that have not changed begin to disturb us. And we begin to go to war as he leads and as he works through us. A spirit-filled man or woman can do everything that God says. Everything that God says. If God's not leading you, you can't do it. In this case, it involved dethroning the enemy from Israel. And some of us, we've let the enemy sit on the throne of our life too long. We thought it was us sitting on that throne, only to discover at this moment in our life, I haven't really been calling the shots. I thought I was. But no, there's a demonic spirit, an enemy, that's been calling the shots in my life. And now I'm ready for him to get off the throne, and I'm ready for Jesus to come and sit on the throne of my heart. How does he do it? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We've already seen that God's motive is love, but what is his purpose? What is his purpose? Why all of this? You know, most of the time we read about God's deliverance of the people from Egypt, and we read over and over again in our mind, we're thinking God delivered them so that they could enter into the promised land. And we focus so much on what God was doing in delivering them from Egypt, bringing them to the promised land. Can I show you something? Something much more fundamental was taking place when God delivered his people. In Exodus 19, verse 4, God is speaking to his people. Listen to what he says. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see that? It wasn't just about the promised land. God wants to bring you to himself. He loves you. You are precious to him. And then anything that you're experiencing right now, it's not just because God wants to destroy your life. Far from it. Sin is destructive, and the consequences of it live inside the sins that we commit. And if God takes his hand off our lives, we just experience the consequences of our own choices and our own decisions over and over and over again. But God wants to rescue you from that. But we have to turn to him. We have to cry out. We have to seek his forgiveness. And when he does, he comes and he rescues us. He delivers us. 